Good morning and welcome again to Trinity Heights Church. Thanks for joining us this morning. Today we're kicking off a new series which we have titled How to Plant a Church Again. As I said on our church anniversary, when the pandemic first got started, Pastor Tim Keller said that all churches in New York City are going to have to replant themselves. In other words, we'll have to more or less start over. And do you remember, we spent a bit of time last year reflecting on what it was like for the Apostle Paul, who went around the Roman world planting churches all over the place. Sometimes he would plant a church and just six months later, he was moving on to the next town to go and plant the next church. And we reflected a little bit on the kind of emotional energy and the emotional upheaval that that would require uh, in his life. And, and so perhaps there was that moment every time he had to move on uh, and he arrived in a new city, perhaps there was that moment where he would take a deep breath and go, here we go again. And so I must admit that when I first heard that we'd have to replant the church, uh, as Tim Keller says, and I think he's right in saying that most churches in New York will have to do that. When I, when I first thought about that, I found that quite a daunting prospect. But over time, as the months have gone on, uh, that feeling of uh, being, that daunting feeling has been outweighed by, I think, a sense of excitement. And I want to share why. Perhaps this illustration will help. Uh, and, and hopefully this will help us think about uh, what, what we're doing next. The artist Francis Bacon said that he never really started work on a fresh canvas with himself coming into the studio feeling fresh and new. He painted his greatest works, not in a pristine, tidy studio, but surrounded with all the other half-finished paintings, the works that were interrupted, that were perhaps only just getting started or would perhaps never reached, quite reached completion. And he says that all of these other works in the studio become part of the new work, the great work that finally gets hung somewhere in, in some gallery or museum. It's all this work and, and vision that has gone before in all the other paintings that provide the depth and the detail, the texture and the complexity of the new masterpiece. Some paintings, you see, you can look at in a glance and they're very pretty, but they go nowhere. But as they say, good art takes time. Good art takes time. It takes time to notice what's happening. That there are some paintings you, you can't take in at a glance, but you have to stand there and, and stare at it for a while. And you have to walk up to it and you have to walk back from it. And then you begin to notice the details and what's going on. They are amazing, great works of art. And they've been hard work and often many, many years in the making. Well, that's something like I hope will happen for us as we start to think about replanting our church this year. Our church plant has been interrupted. Many people have been scattered across the country, some temporarily, others more permanently. Some friends were leaving the city anyway, but others left because of the pandemic or perhaps their, their date was brought forward because of the pandemic. Uh, we will miss those friends and, and we're thankful actually that those friends have remained connected with us each Sunday virtually from afar. That's I think one of the highlights of, of what's been going on. And so we are not in a sense coming into a pristine studio. We, we've had this experience of planting a church together. We have so, seen something of what church life can look like. 
And I hope that the hard work that we've done beforehand is really going to create that depth and meaning and texture to what we do next, so that much of what we will do will be informed by what has already uh, gone before. We're not getting a new vision, but we do want to take our vision to greater depths and greater detail. So over the next few weeks, I want to think about the parts of our vision that we've talked about many times before the things that we already know, and I want to invite you to think about how we can take those things to new depths and new de levels of detail. So with that in mind, I want to consider some of the stuff we've already been about, which is sort of here in the room with us, as it were, and which we want to build on and deepen. So we're going to start with a passage that has been crucial um, in the way that we think about church planting. It's a passage that we read every Christmas, actually, and it's from John chapter one. I'll just read part of it again. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. And all things were made through him, and without him nothing was made that has been made. So the first thing is that this is a sacred vision of the universe that John gives us here. He begins by echoing Genesis chapter one. Now, whenever the New Testament authors borrow from somewhere else, they want their readers to go to that other place that they're borrowing from. In this case, John wants us to remember the creation story, which we looked at last year. And so I want to take what we said about the Genesis creation story at the start of last semester, if anyone can remember that far back, and bring that to our understanding of this passage. God creates the heavens and the earth. And if you remember, we said that one of the sort of key pictures in Genesis 1 is that of a workman building a temple. There's an analogy that the author is evoking between God creating his creation and a workman building a temple. And we said that the temples in the ancient world were never complete just because the form and the structure of the temple was put up. The, the temple is not just a fine piece of finished architecture. The temple reaches completion only when it is a functioning temple. And so the temple had to be furnished. The sacred items had to be brought in, which is part of a temple inauguration. And temple inaugurations in ancient Mesopotamia would often last, surprise for surprise, seven days. And on the final day of a temple inauguration, what would happen is the God would be brought into the temple and would rest there, filling the space with its presence. Well, this brings an entirely different picture of what it means when it says that on the seventh day, God rested. It is not the picture of a God who sort of goes off to sleep on the seventh day. This is the picture of God coming in and filling the temple of his creation with his presence. That's how the creation story gives us this sacred vision of the universe by telling us creation is God's temple. And so by evoking this passage in this opening sentence, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. By, by evoking this passage in his opening sentence, John is situating us 
in this sacred realm. That is how John chooses to begin his gospel narrative. Now, uh, for a little bit of church history, uh, not everyone agrees uh, or has agreed with John's view of things. During the second century, there were those who argued that the incarnation, the belief that God became flesh, would not have happened, could never have happened, because this world is too disgusting. This, this flesh, this material world is so evil, a, a, a true deity would never have come into this world and contaminated itself by entering into this, this human form so fully so as to take on human flesh and human blood and human culture this is what's known as deceitism and the deceitists argued instead that the incarnation was really just a very very elaborate deception what god had really done was take on a sort of appearance of a human being but he wasn't really a human being if you've seen the Men in Black movies, you, you know how in those movies, how the earth is full of aliens. It's just that we don't always recognize them because they often look like humans, but they're just in human suits, which the aliens are inside and, and, and looking out of. And, and they can actually unzip these human suits and step out of them. Well, that is something like the deceitic view of the incarnation. He's not really human. It's just a human suit. But if we take John seriously, and we understand that he's evoking the creation story right at the beginning of his gospel, well then we understand that he is evoking a sacred vision of creation intended as God's temple, which God himself would come and reside in. John is Jewish and understands Jesus in the context of this Jewish tradition. To get to the human suit deceitist view of things, we actually have to divorce John from his own culture and tradition. In other words, in order to find the support in the Bible for, for divorcing God so entirely from his creation, you also have to find a way of divorcing John from his own culture. But I want you to take a moment to think about these two very different visions of the universe, particularly in regard to church planting. So what would happen if we were informed by John's vision? You know, what would a church look like? What would we as a church, how would we as a church approach the surrounding predominant culture? So think about that for a moment. If we were really informed by John's view of things, the sacred universe and, and this idea of God becoming fully human, Now think about what would happen if Trinity Heights said, eh, forget John, <laughs> we'll, we'll, go the, we'll go with the deceitic view of things, which says that the world is evil and we need to escape it. What would our posture be toward the surrounding culture then? What, would, what kind of church would we be? What would our relationships look like? Just think for a moment about those two very different theological visions and how they might inform church planting. I want you to know that all of this, right from the start, all this stuff that John says about the goodness of creation and the word becoming flesh, the creation as God's temple and the incarnation. I want you to know that when we first had this vision of planting a church, we wanted this passage to inform everything that we did. So 
I want to invite you to keep this passage close at hand in, in, the, in the coming months. Read it, reread it, think about it in all of its nuance, because my hope is that as we keep reflecting on it, this will keep shaping and keep influencing how we operate as a church in New York City. Um, it's been at the forefront of our minds as we thought about planting the church first time. And as we replant the church, I want it to continue to be at the forefront of all our minds. So, you know, if someone were to come in and ask you, well, what's this church is about? Then maybe we might take them to John chapter one as a sort of starting place, perhaps. So let me expand a little on, on why and how this, this has been informing us. Um, before we moved to New York City, we came and talked to the church planting experts at Redeemer City to City. And we sat down with a guy called Mark Reynolds, who helps head that up. And he spent an hour trying to talk Julia and I out of planting a church. Here we were, Julia and myself, just sitting there with him, all excited about church planting. And here is this guy who's all about church planting in New York City. And he spends the first hour trying to discourage us from doing it. But it was actually the right thing to do. He was doing due diligence because there have been so many churches um, that have come and gone within two years. In fact, after 9-11, uh, there was this big push for church planting in New York. So many church planters came into the city. But what they found is that eight out of 10 church plants would fail within the first year or two. Now, some of these churches had a lot of financial backing, far more than we've ever had. And, and we've had plenty. Our supporters have been extremely generous. But Mark told us that some of these planters came in with tons of financial backing, and yet they failed. Some of these church plants came in with entire teams of paid staff to do everything, overseeing every area of church, church life, and yet they also failed. And so some church planting groups and denominations came to the conclusion that the reason these church plants failed was because they were not led by native New Yorkers. But actually, that's not true because some of the most successful church plants in New York have been led by people from Australia or Philly or some other place. So city to city, after a lot of experience with working with church planters, came to this conclusion. The success of a church plant is not primarily to do with money or having a team or being led by a New Yorker. I'm sure all those things can be helpful. But the church plants that succeeded, some of them had no team and less money and were led by out-of-towners. So, so what matters? What, what is it about? Well, what they concluded was that the number one thing was cultural agility, the capacity to adapt to the culture, to be able to speak the language of the culture, to be able to share the Christian story in a culturally appropriate way. John says the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only son who came from the father, full of grace and truth. God enters into a specific culture at a specific time, speaking a specific language, taking on a specific customs and traditions. And from inside that nation, from inside that cultural heritage, within that language, God makes his appeal to humanity. And so 
if this is what God does, then the church is not meant to stand at a distance from the culture or, or adopt some sort of superficial surface aspects of the culture, like a, like a human suit, right? But enter into culture. The good news about Jesus needs to be embodied. It needs to be incarnated. It needs to be made flesh in our own cultural contexts. It needs to be spoken in the indigenous language. It needs to be conveyed through signs and symbols that people will understand. How does this happen? How do we get to a place where we can communicate like this? You know, Julia and I lived in Mexico for nearly three years, and uh, my aim was to learn Spanish well enough to be able to write and deliver lectures to pastors and missionaries in training. So we knew that we needed instruction. We needed, we needed a teacher. So the first few months we were in language school and we went to class and we had books and, and uh, all of that. But it wasn't enough. We needed the full immersion experience. We needed to be with Mexican friends. We, we had to try to use the language, stumbling at first, awkward, but we had to put it into practice. Now, after we had finished, our, I think it was our first three to four months, we, we were joined by some students from America who were majoring in Spanish and were now in their last semester of their senior year. So, so they had nearly three and a half, almost four years of Spanish language training in the classroom several times a week and some conversational practice as well. But these students couldn't believe we had only been there three months because our Spanish was actually at the same level as theirs. And that had nothing to do with us being particularly gifted at learning languages. I'm not. My, my wife is, actually. Julia is, but, but I'm not. Always been a struggle for me. But here we were, three months of full immersion, uh, where you have to use the language, where you have to use it to get by and, and just do everyday stuff and, and sort of survive. And it brought us up to the level of something like the equivalent of nearly four years of college classroom learning. Well, I'll expand on this analogy more next week, but you get the point. We don't get cultural agility if we stand back from the culture. We don't get to speak the language with some fluency by holding the culture at arm's length. It's always messier in the street than in the classroom. It's more unpredictable in free-flowing conversations and memorizing verb tables. It involves being with real people, becoming real friends who are involved in the mess and brokenness of each other's lives. But then, and only then, with our hearts and our mouths, we might be able to utter our first truly coherent sentence. But when that happens, well, that's when the conversation begins to flow. <laughs>